Welcome to the Seventh Art Cinema Podcast. My name is Pavan Mundi, one of the producers of the Seventh Art, and I'm joined by Christopher Heron, the host of the Seventh Art and also one of the producers. Hi, Chris. Hey, Pavan. Uh, on today's podcast, we have uh, another interview recorded during the Toronto International Film Festival 2012 uh, with one of your personal favorite filmmakers of Down Terrace and Kill List and Sightseers, Ben Wheatley. Yeah, Ben Wheatley was a, a tremendous coup for us. Uh, we, Before the festival, he was high up on my list of people I wanted to talk to. We fought very hard to get him. It was a last-minute... Right. Uh, Could we just email him? What, what happened there? It was not a conventional booking. Yeah, it was not conventional. <laughs> he was involved in some capacity. I we remember. initially emailed Ben, and he passed it on to his publicist, which we thought would have been a slam dunk, but it was not. It was a hard block in the paint, mm-hmm. and... Um, we eventually, the, the reason it was unconventional is because we didn't, most of our interviews are booked in advance. This one was basically booked the day of, a, lot, a very last minute thing with IFC. Right, and we didn't have uh, TIFF accreditation. We were rejected for TIFF accreditation, so we needed to uh, get Chris the ability to see these films, and for most of these films, especially the higher profile ones, uh, they are not uh, prone to give out online screeners at all, so it was a matter of getting you into the screening as well, right? This, this was like basically no screeners. The thing is that some of them in, that we booked in advance, we could see the press screenings in advance. This one we were, based on the scheduling, wouldn't be able to see the press screening, so it ended up being at the opening uh, screening at uh, Ryerson Theatre, which is TIFF's biggest Theater. So that win- that's not Winter Garden, is it? No, uh, but I still think Ryerson's the biggest. It's the one that houses Midnight Madness. And um, so there was a, a Midnight Madness crowd there to see Sightseers. They l- loved the film. It's a great, great experience. Um, it all set up what was, you know, an interview I was looking forward to. You know, I was happy to have liked the film as much as I did. Uh-huh. What's your personal, do you have a personal favorite uh, Ben Wheatley film? Well, as of the recording, I'm staring at my Field in England poster, but I have not yet seen the film. Uh, it just had its VOD, uh, day and date, theatrical TV and DVD Blu-ray release in the UK, but hasn't legally played in any fashion in North America, so I'm waiting to see that. I have a feeling that one may be my favorite. It's a toss-up between Kill List and Sightseers. I think they're very different films. I like Kill List for its formal qualities, um, I mean, but Sightseers is such a tight film tightly constructed a lot of fun uh-huh. I, i'm i have it's been a while since i've seen kill list but is that does that have an ambiguous ending in some respects yeah i mean you, you kind of don't know exactly what's going on at the end but you know it shed some light on what was happening in the film but right. there are still questions about why although we do discuss i think in true seventh art fashion i believe this interview involves <laughs> the filmmaker uh revealing more about the ending of the film right so if you haven't seen the films uh this is probably a s- official spoiler alert that's good advice for any of our interviews particularly right. our thomas Vinterberg one where i think within the sixth minute of the interview we are discussing in depth the ending of his brand new film which had not and yet spoiled been all yet. Of films <laughs> within one run-on sentence spoiled every single one of his films to the chagrin of his publicist but to be fair and and this should be a point directly at the publicist um that's the that is the marketing for that interview it's why people are sharing it it's why people are discussing it they like the fact that once you have seen it you have greater access to the the rationale behind the ending right so if you haven't seen kill list or you haven't seen 
sightseers, press pause now, fire up your VOD box, your sling box, your Roku, your PS3, load them up, check out the films, and then check out this podcast. So this is our interview with Ben Wheatley. Hope you guys enjoy it. Um, be sure to uh, connect with us on social media uh, at the seventh art with the number seven or on facebook um i think we're developing a new uh friendster account so we're gonna do that watch the ben or listen to this ben wheatley interview and uh we'll see you on friendster of sightseers with the question of morality mm. broadly <laughs> <laughs> what in what respect well it's something that cropped up in kill list and i want to mm. go back to that and there's a, a quote from from that film uh, which is that they're bad people that deserve what they're getting yeah yeah and i want to talk about that as an entry point into sightseers yeah well you know i mean i, I think there's a, there's a theme that runs through the movies that I'm interested in, which is this kind of personal um, morality, where they, you know, the down terrace is the same. They've, they've created their own moral universe, um, and Kill List is the same. Obviously, they've, you know, they're they're operating outside of the law, you know, and and certainly sightseers, they they make it up as they go along, pretty much. It's not as certain as it's not as certain as Kill List, but I mean, this stuff, you know, that 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 quote that the the bad people they should suffer is kind of part of a game which ends up with the librarian character getting his head smashed in and that's the kind of thing of going well if you take kind of vigilante justice to its extreme or you take those kinds of thing, that kind of thinking which is you know the, the knee-jerk kind of tabloid newspaper reaction of like you know a, a child has been killed if I get hold of one of those guys I'd smash his face in you know well that's there we go this is what happens and um, it's not justice you get out of these things but you become them you become the thing that's the problem you know and I think that's you know, that's that was kind of where that was at. I mean, you know, in in terms of sightseers, it's it's a kind of game that they play where it she doesn't he, he has a kind of moral kind of code, but it's very hazy, you know, and 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 and, and will be reset to suit him whenever. Which I kind of think is basically his own way of preserving his integrity, his own integrity, in, in terms of like not feeling guilty about stuff. Um, she's a bit more than open book you know she does whatever and, and we were we were thinking that you know if she if he hadn't been murdering people and he'd been interested in something else like hang gliding or something she'd have got into that instead you know she's just totally you know she's she's she, she's kind of trying to follow what he's doing you know it doesn't really matter and then just because it's murder is something she gets behind but it's not you know she's she's open his, his decisions came, seem to come out of kind of uh, frustration, though. So, but when she's following him, it seems like more of a, I don't even want to say naive, I think it's more someone who wants to try new things. Yeah. And, and that comes out pretty uh, explicitly when she's talking about not wanting to go back to the box um, yeah, yeah. of her life. And maybe uh, tasting new things is literal when she's tasting the blood. So I'm wondering how those two characters and how they kind of adapt to their scenarios differ. Well, it, the thinking was that she was kind of a purer, kind of more open and um, 
chaotic character who could just, you know, she was a force, force of nature, where he was a bit more anal and tried to control it. But he, yeah. But it was this. The basic idea was that it, he did. It's a, it's a guy who has a, a woman that he thinks is is malleable, but it turns out she's actually better at it than he is, and she's a nat she's the natural and surpasses him. But it different. You know, it happens in the movie where he just stops killing people, <laughs> and the, and then she carries on. You know, until he becomes kind of the last victim. And he kind of stops when he develops a kind of homosocial experience where he has like a friend that's a man that's mm -hmm. also a business partner potentially yeah. that he can share that with. And, and what is the, the gender dynamics that are going on? Well, that's a kind of, it's another betrayal by him in the same way that with the kissing of the bride-to-be mm -hmm. and the, uh, you know, and that. It, it, but it's already been set up that the logic of it is the, you know, has he touched you logic of why the, why the rambler must die. So she's only following his is an example to, to the, its logical conclusion, but but Chris is a bit more, you know, he you know he's already shown that he's pretty hypocritical when it comes <laughs> to his rules, you know. So she shouldn't really be, you know, she shouldn't really be following it all the way to the end. But he set he set the situation up, and he's basically a victim of it. And his hypocrisy is kind of driven by class too, because what bothers him at first seems like it's a general thing about littering, but then mm. it seems in the second one that it's more of an envy for a different class and an irritation from, at least in my mind, gloating or like showing off one. Yeah, but also crushing his dream, yeah. you know, as, as, as random as his dream is, you know, he's never going to write the book, it's just bullshit, you know, it's, it's, he's spinning her a line and he's kidding himself. I mean, I've seen it, so, you know, I used to be the, a, a big joke where we'd see, we talk to people and they're going, yeah, I'm going to take a year off and write my book. And I, Ames and I've been writing for like 10 fucking years and getting nowhere and he's going, well, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, whatever. So uh, that, I think that's why the, uh, and also the guy in the, the you know, uh, uh, Ian is a massive liar anyway, because he's, you know, the, 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 everyone's so quick to assume he's killed himself because of this financial problem that he's got. So he's putting forth this big thing of like, I'm really, really rich and successful. And I've got my book, my books, but it's like, it's all, that's all a front as well. And I also, but I also picked up on maybe some smaller things. In, in the case of Ian, there's the, the caravan that's free of clutter and clutter mm -hmm. being, personal possessions <laughs> is what they qualify as clutter mm. but also um, just the the box that the, the the one man has with his sandwich in it how mm. it's perfectly compartmentalized with like what seems to be healthy food versus say the crisps that they're feeding the, the dog yeah it seemed like there was an element maybe of a different social sphere oh yeah totally I mean it, it, but it's a lot of it's out of jealousy really you <laughs> yeah. know but it's that thing of I, don't know, I mean there's a lot of wish fulfillment in it that you wish you could take you could that you, you know, you're just, I find that you're kind of frustrated in life and all those people who litter or drunk people or abusing people on the train, you never do anything, one never does anything about it. And this guy does, but, but he doesn't, you know, he hasn't really thought it, thought it through particularly. And it's that thing of, well, you know, that, that there's a bit of kind of quasi-social commentary in this stuff, but it really is just an excuse to, to vent his, his kind of rather random anger, whoever is kind of available. Um, but he kind of dresses it up as it might be come behind a social commentary, but I don't know. I don't think it probably <laughs> is, you know. Is that why there's kind of like a, a slow motion in the use of music for those moments where you do kind of get to live out those, or one gets to live out those? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, that, that stuff was about, um, is making those moments as vivid as possible and, and that the, the, I mean, the use of slow motion in general in cinema, I think, for me, is this idea of, is, is that time does move at different paces depending on how you feel. Mm. And it's trying to get to that real, even though it's, super, it's, it's a kind of, um, 
it's an abstract thing to be into slow-mo kind of but it, it also in a, in a weird way feels more realistic to, to me a bit and also I wanted to make those kind of murders feel really hyper hyper real so you start to get the, the kind of you get inside of Chris's and then Tina's heads as they you experience this kind of incredible moment that, and then it goes back to the socio-realist kind of style which the rest of the movie's in. And there's also the use of, a, a very impressive use of parallel editing in those moments mm. and is that to maybe signify the ripple effect of what these actions do or? Yeah, well, they kind of, it's joining them, it's, it's almost a kind of magical joining of these things. I mean, there's the, the first one that, that, where it happens where they, it, where Tina's like watching the, 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 the kind of shame and doing their thing and then she's with them and then he's, then it's cross cut between her dancing and, and, and Chris thinking and it's almost like, it's almost like she projects herself there and then he can see her but did he imagine her there or did she imagine it and it's like them them almost becoming like kind of joined together as one psyche was the kind of thinking about it behind it um and then later you've got that thing of the the murder of um what was part of that same sequence actually kind of the murder of ian and that that the other thinking behind that was it was like all these little moments were joining together in almost a kind of um, they were the different parts of a kind of a spell that, that started to bind. So that this idea: is it happening? Is Tina dreaming it, or is she being? Is she psychically kind of reacting to it? But they've been joined at this moment beforehand, and now they're now they're kind of they're they're, they're twin together. Mm. Yeah, there's kind of a dream logic at points, and mm. there, there, there's one point where there's literally a dream. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a significant structural moment and there's another mm. moment that I want to talk about the two in relation to the other and that is the flashback. Mm. The flashback serves a narrative function but yeah. it also seems like it's a, a significant jump that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean for me the structurally the, the, there's the two big murders, the, the um, Ian's death and the bride's death are the same sequence, you know, it's it signified with the use of the um, the same piece of music but done from a male perspective, female perspective, different covers. Um, and then it also the, 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 uh, the shaman and the dancing is replicated by the brides and, the, um, and then the head shaman, the kind of snake man, is the, is the stripping policeman. So, and then, but then again structurally the, after the bride's death is the, um, the dream sequence but preceding the other one is the is her projecting herself into the shaman dance so they're, they're kind of basically the same sequence twice as mm. she kind of and it's her kind of taking over his um you know his process and kind of you know swallowing him up and then <laughs> and then after that he stops murdering people and and she continues on mm. um so what was the other thing the there's the flashback yeah i mean yeah that was i mean it I just thought it was really funny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's no clever thinking behind that. Well, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's almost like she's lost inside the dog's head, which is, and the, the moment she sees this dog and, and feels that it's, it's the dog from the past, and it's just such a mad, bonkers kind of moment for her. Mm. And as the first shots of the film, that is kind of a through line that exists to kind of ground the, the story in one specific route. Yeah, I mean, it's it's guilt. You know, she's guilty of this crime you know and like the, the the mother is um you know upset about the dog dying as if it's like another child has died it's much more important than <laughs> she is and she's just reduced down to nothing you know um but then the, the shots at the beginning then echo the shots at the end the way that that tina is framed her head's framed out and talking to the mother and then you get 
Chris at the end talking, uh, standing over her with her head for his head framed out, and her sitting. She becomes the mother in the movie, and she punches him in the nuts. So it's kind of <laughs> these kind of bookend images. You mentioned the cover songs, and I was interested not only of the selection of Season of the Witch, but also the use of covers generally. Mm. Um, well, that that that's kind of looking at that idea of that she's taking over and, and copying behavior mm -hmm. and you get this but it also for me was that did that you know I tried to work out a scheme for each of the movies how the music will work and it, it was the thinking was that I'd watched this documentary about kraut rock and I, I was really um, I, I'd been kind of uh, I'd grown up with this with this assumption um, that, that like the new wave and British post-punk stuff was like invented in the UK you know and like we, we were always told you know it's good it's the greatest pop music in the world British acts British acts is so fantastic but then when you f actually look in dig into the history of it it's all just copied from not copied but you know it isn't it didn't suddenly spring up in England it's 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 come from Noi and it's come from you know Cluster and, and uh, all these going craft work so so I felt like that felt to me like a weird hidden history that we'd been sold this thing, the bill of goods wasn't true, you know. And, um, and so in the, in the film you've got these two layers of like these big brassy pop tunes from the 80s which is like the, you know, uh, the reappropriation of that. And then underneath it you've got Noi and Cluster and Harmonia and all these kinds of bands. And it's just saying that, you know, that, that there's you know, levels of reality within, within the film, you know, and uh, uh, that maybe you know, that some of what you're being told isn't true. Mm. But you've got, you also got Julie Triscoll, which is very localized yeah. as well. Yeah. Is, there, is that part of the tension? And I mean, with a lot of your films, some, and, and this one, there's, is there an incidental score at the start, or is that a track? No, it's a, there's a Jim Williams score in it as well yeah. that runs through it. it. It, to my ears, just recalls something like Fairport Convention or that kind of history of British folk music that exists, where it kind of starts getting a little more yeah, be more pot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. it. Doesn't go as far as current '93, but it, yeah, well, yeah, it's a bit of that, and it was, and it all, it was also a kind of, you know, it's a thinking score. You know, it's the sound of thinking and, and planning and plotting. Was that that was the basic thought behind what what kind of Jim was doing? And then he did the the track that goes underneath the uh, the drive through the all the rocks and stuff, which is like a big kind of tangerine dream style <laughs> electronica thing and but the so we wanted to go from kind of um, analog uh, instruments into kind of electronic you know, that's not right is it anyway you know from 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 uh, uh, cello and stuff to big synths or moogs mm. or moogs or whatever you call them so that was kind of his that was his bag in it it wasn't it was the first time I've used a lot of um, uh, pop tracks as well I mean there's, I think there's only one track in the whole of Kill List. Yeah. There's the Joan Armour trading track, but in this one, yeah, we started to really construct it out of, out of, out of this music. Is that because there's a kind of road movie quality and there's a playlist that accompanies that? It, was that, it was that and that, you know, that it's really important that you get the right track to talk about their childhoods because they're like, kind of like children. And it's almost also, it's kind of, it's, set, it's contemporary, but it's a little bit like it's in the 70s as well, or the 80s. Yeah. So, so there was that element. And it's also just because I had the money. You know, I could actually, <laughs> I could do it, you know, and I could start thinking like that where I couldn't think like that before because I couldn't, we couldn't afford to clear the tracks. Was there any influence from road movies, uh, even particularly uh, ones from the UK? Um, not massively. I mean, we'd looked at all this stuff. I mean, the main problem, uh, the one main worry I had was like, how do you, you know, the, how do you cover the journey of things without it looking really boring mm. over time? And that's a tricky 
situation. You know, I, I hate filming in cars, and there's only like four shots you can do unless you're going to fucking pull the car apart. Um, so, uh, so we watched a few. I mean, I think Easy Rider was the one I watched the most. Just to go right, but Easy Rider is a really weird film. If you watch it without the sound, it's like it's really rough. <laughs> you know, but it's the music that just like pulls that movie together. It's it's, it's, it's odd. There is a, a, a sense of space that, to me, came out the most with the, the William Blake poem. Mm. And I was wondering if you could talk maybe about kind of that history, like, because they're discussing kind of medieval times almost mm. at that point, and there is a kind of Jerusalem association. Yeah, I mean, that kind of, that had come out of um, the, I mean, that, that, that poem, the, the, that, the Blake thing is said in public schools a lot. Yeah, so it's yeah. a joke about that. To one, one degree, and it's also like this thing of the, um, you know, the actual what the, what Jerusalem means. You know, the lyrics mean you know Jesus walking, coming to England and walking about, which is just like absolute hallucinatory <laughs> bullshit, and um, and also using someone like John Hurt to do it as well, which is like a kind of real, you know, he's got re- really heavy gravitas, but then cutting it off halfway through with the murder, it's like it's a part of that kind of just slightly pissing on the, you know that idea of the upper classes you know so he's got no respect for this guy and he's you know he's got no respect he's not respect for any of these traditions even though he talks about defending them you know i have the association of someone not in the uk with it with football too and there's mm. like it's coming at a violent moment too mm. when this kind of thuggish uh, attitude comes out mm. uh, or tribalism yeah it's more tribal i think it's yeah. not thug- it's not so much thuggish it's, but he's more it's more primal, you know, yeah. and, that, and there's, there's those kind of themes run through, you know, Kill List as well, and, uh, and Down Terrace, so that idea of that all, all of history running at the same time, rather than, you know, mm. that, that we pretend that we're in the modern world, but we, we're not, we, you know, we're moments away from, you know, I always like that idea of, you know, you think that you've, there's a, what did the version of you do a hundred years ago, and, you know, because you're not massively different from that person, yeah. really, you like to pretend, one likes to pretend they are, but I'm sure that we're hardly different at all, and it's, you know, I always think of, like, Neil Maskell's character in Kill List, that he would have been at the Battle of Agincourt, and he would have been <laughs> all these different places, and his, his whole, whole kind of existence is, like, killing people, and cutting their heads off and stuff, and now he's stuck in a kind of suburban house, and he doesn't quite know what to do about it, and that's why he's so like confused and I think Chris is the same you know he's like a he's a peak dwelling bloke who you know kills things with spears and things <laughs> and he's, he's not right for this time what is the role of the suburban or, or like we talked about the box before but there's also the other metaphor of the sanctum and this kind mm-hmm. of safety um, from not heading out of the house I guess yeah um, I don't know I mean you know it's a very similar space from that to down terrace and, yeah. and the suburban house in Kill list though it's a bit more the kill list house is a bit more aspirational than but they're all the same they're all real houses no actually that's no, not true the, the sightseers one is a set is a dress mm. it's not it's a real house with a dress but the kill list house was is Andy Stark that produces his um, sister-in-law's house you know and then down, down terrace is that wasn't dressed that down terrace you know yeah. it was uh, Bob Hill's house who's in it you know so um, but that you know they're real real environments as much as we could well, the first two are absolutely real, and the, the, the third one is, is is made up. But it's it's an odd one, you know. And you talk when I get um, interviewed by uh, or some of the some of the North American reviews are kind of saying, you know, they live in these squalid houses and stuff. It's like fucking, <laughs> I live in houses like that. It's not. It's just it's the scale of things is so much smaller in the UK. So, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, th- there was another bit of thinking was that the we'd had 
a film basically down terrace we never got out of the house and so uh, kill this we got out of it after a half hour and this this one we wanted to get out sightseers we wanted to get out straight away mm. because we've done too much our space <laughs> <laughs> drama yeah. i like they use the word aspirational too because in, in the first two films they're they're small they also double as a kind of small business mm. as well so there is that much more safety that occurs but in mm. this sense the aspirations need to be outside of the house like she, yeah, but he's got his thing. He wants to write the book, doesn't yeah. he? And she's she's just going along with that. And he's got a, you know, it's a tiny dream. But you also get the sneaky suspicion he's it's a suicide run. The whole thing is that it was always going to end up with him slinging himself off that bridge by hook or by crook. You know? <laughs> um, so and he's like his the book is more like a like a suicide note, mm. I think. Um, and she sees that when she looks inside it and sees the drawings of like, and this is what he's planning, inspired by her not mm. by that point, but. It, was that idea that they, you know, I think it's perfectly possible to, like, murder a load of people and not get caught really quick <laughs> if, you, um, if you murder strangers uh, that you've got no association with. But you will get caught if you keep doing it, you know, over, over a period of a week. And yeah. I think they, he kind of probably knew in the back of his head that they were done for, especially when she's just so messy about it and leaving clues all over the place. So... I think that was that's what pushes them to the kind of burning of the caravan and the whole, the mm. whole that whole end sequence. The sound design in that end sequence is incredible, and I, it is throughout the film. And, and I've read that you you edit sound in. Is that, is yeah. that true? Yeah, I mean, I've got um, over the years, I've got big sound libraries of my own, and also kind of ripped them out of games. Oh know? really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't use them in the films, but we but I use them as temp. Mm. Um, so I like to cut with the sound in so that. Again, so I've got a plan for it, so I know what, you know, and I'm not leaving it up to to the the sound mix, so that when we get there, we go right. How are we going to fix this? You know, <laughs> um, but also just for pacing, so you know what what you've got. I don't understand why you wouldn't do that. So you you know you know that this will hold for a certain amount of time because you've got this sound. Um, also, I had such a good time doing Kill List with the and starting to do 5.1, and I just was like, you know, I really want to, um, you know, really think about how we. How we do the surround sound stuff. So, and uh, and on sites is the music. Jim's music is all delivered to us as stems, so that we can put it through into surround. So it's surround mix. So mm. sound comes from the back to the front, and all this within within his music, which is something I thought was quite I, I hadn't really heard before, and you know, thought it was quite interesting. I had an interesting experience with the sound watching it last night because I felt almost as if watching it with an audience kind of detracted from it for me because it's a film where the tone shifts kind of on a dime mm. and maybe quicker than Kill List or, or Down Terrace mm. and the sound tended to cue that for me I tended to feel like okay it's gone it's really funny but now it's got a little it's gone a, there's an about face mm. and people just continued to laugh yeah, I felt yeah. like that sound was like a guiding point to the maybe the tonal shifts it, the, it's a tricky thing with an audience isn't it I mean that and comedy is really tricky editing for an audience because you you Sometimes you see it in TV stuff where you think it's, it's achingly slow, mm. but what they're waiting for, they're leaving gaps for the laughs. Mm -hmm. But if you don't laugh, it's bad news. So I, I kind of try and cut the stuff as fast as possible, and I don't care about leaving those gaps mm. for the laugh. But it, the consequence of that, sometimes if, it, if it's a big laugh, you lose lines. Mm. You're going to lose a load of lines uh, with an audience. Um, but so it be, you know, it's kind of, I'd rather have that than, than gaps. So it's. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I went, I went to a screening of Down Terrace in Rotterdam, and they, when the, the the old lady gets run over by the car, the laugh went on for did the whole of the next scene. <laughs> just gone, you know, you didn't hear any of it. So it's, 
but you know you can't I don't think you can count on that hmm. was the tonal shift anything that you felt was it a challenge to, to jump so quickly back and forth between no I mean it, you know it's, it's, that, it's, it's a way of working that we've had since Down Terry so and that was that had come out of a short film we did which is on the Down Terry DVD yeah, called yeah. Rob Loves Kerry and, it, it, and that was the real eye opener for us that um it was like the first thing Amy had edited as well, so it was like we, we cut all the exposition out and we cut hard into it, crying and laughing, crying and laughing. And it was like, wow, this, this works really well. You can get past all this. Terrace ever was in the end, and I thought I, was, I thought making Dan Terrace had gone into it thinking well, I'm going to make a feature-length version of that short, which I had done ten years before, and um, but I'd done a lot of TV since then, so that calmed me down a bit. So I was, bit, I was surprised. I mean, I was surprised how um, kind of straight a lot of Dan Terrace was. <laughs> you know, we were going to we were going to go a lot madder on it, but then we didn't. Yeah. Um, coolest I, I found tends to, the people like myself that love it and the people mm. who, who don't love it as much tend to have the same reason, which is that there's like almost three different parts to it or mm. three different modes that it's operating in. Mm. Um, and it's not just comedy or drama, but it's almost as if you've got your kind of kitchen sink realism or social realism at mm. a certain point. You've got almost a road movie in the middle and then mm. you have more of the rural uh, supernatural film. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering how you approach kind of melding genres in that way. Well, I mean, I see that film, it is, it is in three chunks that way, but I also see it as a symmetrical film, you know, so it can fold in the middle and it has corresponding scenes that run across it. Yeah. And we, we, you know, that was specific, you know, it was in the script. Um, and that you get this thing of like the, the, the hammer thing is 45 minutes into the middle and then it, then it was almost, we imagined that it was such a violent thing that it ripples through the rest of the movie and it's kind of, it breaks the editing across the film. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it, didn't, it didn't bother me massively that people felt that. <laughs> but it, it just is what the, what the story was, you know. All, all those, those modes seem very tied, especially to, to British cinema and the history mm. of British cinema. And, and in that sense, it's, it's also a film, like all of your films, to some extent, are, are commenting on that. And I'm wondering what relationship you see it having with that history and maybe not just the horror a lot of people talk about, but I'm maybe more interested in the social realism qualities. Well, I was thinking a lot about Alan Clark yeah. then for that one, and it was, and it's the violence of, in a way, almost, I feel like the, 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 the inter-family violence is more, and the, the shouting is more violent than the, mm. than the actual physical stuff. And I think that's what pr pretty much upsets people from the get-go with that movie. And, it's the, and it was a weird thing we learned with it was that you, we didn't learn, I kind of knew it, but it was, you know, we came, came to the end of it when, in that film, is that you, if you can associate with something and you understand it, then it's much more, um, it's much stronger than, than stuff that's more movie trope stuff. So the, no one ever got upset about them shooting the priest in the head <laughs> at all. You know, and it's like there's never a reaction in the cinema. It's like, oh, you know, it's another guy getting shot in the head. But the, the hammer trauma stuff and, and the shouting uh, in front of the kid stuff, people get really upset by and I think it's just simply because they know what it is you know they've had it happen to them everyone's heard their parents argue and they they remember what that trauma is and everyone's hit their hands with hammers so they all know what that is 
very few people have been shot, you know, yeah. so they know that's a movie thing that happens to other people. Um, uh, you know, fictional people in fictional s setups, but those other things are real things from, you know. And, um, yeah, and that was interesting to, to kind of play with that. So, you know, we've got all our cards, we play all our cards right up the front, so it's like claustrophobic and, and um, uh, realistic, but also um, uh, it kind of makes people input switches the buttons that make them upset to start with and then everything else that comes after that is basically it buys you the the more crazy stuff later on because you feel like you're in a realistic mode i mean if it was a proper kind of um hollywood remake the beginning of the movie would be some kind of crazy cult action which sets up the idea of the cult yeah. and then you'd go back to the family and then da, da, da. but by doing that you would say to the audience don't worry this is a horror film and we're going to do horror stuff in it. It's all a bit silly and it will happen later on. You like this horror stuff, don't you? But you'll get to see more of it later on. Whereas the way the structure is in the, moment, in, in the film, it kind of says this is a very realistic, kind of you know, quasi-realistic documentary style drama about people who are um, having troubles and then it goes crazy. So you, you kind of think it's much realer than it might, might not be. You know? Not only is it realistic, but like another scene that you didn't mention that people really dislike is the, ha the actual murder with the hammer. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've mentioned that it's the absence of the cut, and, mm. and that sounds completely uh, right, but it's also, for me, the distance of the camera yeah, yeah. and it, the static quality. Mm. And in that sense, it's almost playing off of art, like the tradition of art films that's developed with like minimal movement of the camera. Yeah. So it's away from maybe the escapism of a... Well, I think it, it's that, it's that, and it's also YouTube and execution footage, and you know, and lo a lot of that YouTube stuff is just horrific. And and but you're miles away from it. It's like four pixels going up and down, and you know, or someone. F I saw a thing the other day with people falling off a mountain, and they were they were tied together on the rope, and they would go, and you can hardly see any of it, but you know what's happened. You just go, oh god, it's so just like a nightmare, horrible, horrible. So. Um, I think it, that that's that language, you know. It's the young and it's uncut. It's not. It's no, never gonna, it, you know. And that's, I've, you know, the, when people say it's the, the film is genre mashing or whatever the fuck that phrase is, <laughs> it, the genre that the real interesting bit of genre jumping that I liked in the that I planned in the movie was jumping from cinema into YouTube, you know. And I think, mm. you know, and that's that's that moment. And is, is that informed by your, your work on kind of viral videos before or, or sketch or anything like that? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's something I'd learned from doing virals of, of um, I mean, it's such simple stuff, you know, the, the kind of handheld footage, as soon as it's handheld, people think it's real <laughs> because that's their experience of watching handheld stuff is, is from wedding videos through to do documentary mm. stuff. So as soon as you shoot stuff like that, it feels, you know, it's talking that language that means it's it's real because no, why would anyone shoot in handheld otherwise, you know? So um, there's that and then not, and then the idea that cutting, I started thinking that cutting in itself was artificial and you, you I was reading, I think Walter Murch was saying about, you know, if you look from side to side, you tend to close your eyes and that's a natural cut, but you know, that's kind of, <laughs> you know, I think it's the only time you really cut is when you're knocked unconscious or you go to sleep and you wake up, you know, that's a, that's a proper cut, you know? Um, and it doesn't happen very often in life. So, you know, as soon as you start introducing edits into it, you're saying there's artifice here. That, and, and that's the, and the language of a horror film in that moment would have been, to cut, it would have been still really horrible, but it would have been cut really close in and something goes smash and all the blood comes up. And that, but that kind of is letting you off the hook and saying, this isn't real. We all know that this is prosthetics because we talk about this a lot and everyone knows that, you know. Um, 
and we've compressed time in some way and obviously everything's moved around. Some, you'd know it subconsciously that that had happened. But when you don't see it, you just go, oh God, they, they really hit that actor, you know? And, they, and he kind of did as well. So, mm. I mean, he's a big rubber hammer, so yeah. he is impacting on him for sure. That film had, you had three editors, yourself and your, your wife. Um, how, how do you set up a set piece like that when you have people editing in, in different rooms? Well, we, what we, how we kind of work with Rob is um, he's somewhere else, mm. um, and Ames and I edit together. And there's kind of, well, there's three, three modes. Three. So Rob, Rob's editing away, and he'll post his edits via... Dropbox or something, okay. and, I, and I'll, we all have got duplicate rushes, and I'll look at what he's up to, and I won't talk to him about it because I want to have that kind of safety net of that I haven't. It's unmediated. I haven't kind of told him. I haven't put my ideas across it so that he can find something completely different and new in it if if, if it's there, you know, in the rushes. Um, and then I'll look at his stuff and I go, oh yeah, okay, that's great, or okay, I'm not using that. And then I'll edit on my own. Um, so. And that'll be that, and then um, I'll edit, I'll operate, and Amy will tell me what to do. So at that point, I kind of become like a traditional editor, and I don't really have much of an opinion on what I'm doing. But I'll, sometimes I'll I'll change it a bit as it goes along a little bit. But I try not to, even at the most craziest stuff that she's saying, I'm trying not to interfere with that because I want her pure kind of what she's thinking and her thought patterns into it. Um, and then it's kind of a basic mashup of all those different types of, of cutting. But generally speaking, like in Kill List, Rob would have done something like the, um, the Christian scene would have been one of his because it's kind of a technical, difficult, overlapping, Altman-y dialogue nightmare the way I shot it because everyone's all on radio mics all talking at the same time on both tables. Um, I'll do something like the tunnel stuff would have been all mine. And then Ames would have come in and done like the crazier cuts, like coming out of like the... Um, uh, the librarian title into that whooshing noise into the punch that was one of hers and kind of and the you know the and, and then she also w works across because of as a more editorial so she'll be like you know restructuring the script as we're putting it together so obviously she's written the script but then she the last pass on the script from the improvisation is her across it kind of making sure that it makes sense um, and trimming out the stuff that we that we don't need so the tunnel being the end of the film, you were responsible kind of Well, they're more the action-y bits, because yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's n maybe not necessarily even that I'm particularly better than anyone else at doing it, it's just I really like stuff yeah. like that, so <laughs> I want it for myself, you know, because, you know, I'm greedy for that, so, and then I'll, that'll be, and I'll, then I'll sound mix that as I go as well, um, I'll sound layer that, and then, then that'll go to Martin Pavey, who's the sound designer, and he'll replace all the sound, um, and then add his own thing on top of it, and then we do the mix after that. The edit of the ending is kind of frantic, but it, the story also is in the sense that there's not really any answers given at that point. And was that something that you were deliberately approaching the film to not reveal too much about why this cult exists? Yeah, I don't think that stuff's that important. Yeah. I think I think most of the questions are answered in it that you, that need answering. You know that. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I think there's been criticism of saying, "Oh, it just comes out of nowhere," but that's just mm. bullshit. It's like it's all it's all in there. It's all you know structured pretty tightly what what you know how how they're being involved in it um and whatnot so um but in terms of like like the 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 kind of you know a scientist or a, a kind of detective coming on and going oh, his mistake was this and this cult has been it's like was it the um race of the devil the uh 
the Warren Oates film where they actually have to stop at a library and look up Satanism <laughs> in a massive book and go, ah, Satanist, okay, okay. It goes on for like 20 minutes and you're like, wow, it's, it's, who is it in that? It's, um, what's the name from MASH, isn't it? Who's the, who plays hot, it's Houlihan. Anyway, um. but it, you know, they, they have a literal scene where they have to read about this stuff and you're like, well, it, does it matter? You know, it's the stuff that's scary about that movie is not mm. that, that, you know. I found the ending scary as well from like a class point of view because it, not knowing about the cult is, I think, beyond borders, uh, conveys a sense of, of there being a private body that somehow has control of things that you do not. Yeah. And, and regardless and, and regardless of where the main characters, what they, who they work for, the government, mm. um, there are hired guns. So it seems like at every level they are a lower class in some respect. Like yeah, I mean, I think there's... I mean, the film is from his, from from Jay's point of view, and Jay doesn't know. Yeah. So why would we know? You know, it, you know. That's what the whole thing about. It's all about posing questions, not giving answers, because answers aren't ever that satisfying or interesting. But questions make you think about lots of different kind of aspects, and you know, that's what's more interesting in a way. But I think you know the clues that you get about if you really want to, you know know what who these guys are. It's like there's loads of clues to what they are. I mean, I always imagine they're a kind of um, that you know, the, the back in the day when you animal sacrifices and human sacrifices and stuff were about crops failing, and, and these guys are more like a modern um, version of um, of a cult that that are or a, or a religion that sits under all religions, and they're and they're and they're in control of the money markets, and the money markets are failing, so they're they're now reconstructing this thing to to restart the money markets. But as you can see, this is a very boring thing yeah, to hear. Yeah. You know, it's like it's in there, but it's not—it's not something you ever want to say out loud. And and I've seen like breakdowns of the movie online. People just completely—they, you know, they read it all, and it's all there. And you sit there and go, "Wow!" You know, it's the, these, you know, there's—you have to have faith in the audience to to understand it. But also, it was designed that it didn't matter if you didn't understand it, and that wasn't a failure of the film or a failure of you as a viewer that you didn't understand it because it's like, you know, I. And then one of the examples I use is, is a primer. Um, and it, in primer, I don't understand what is going on, but it doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. Yeah. You know, I'm not angry at the filmmakers because <laughs> I, didn't, I don't understand the science of primer, you know, or, um, or any of the work of David Lynch. <laughs> you know, it's like there's plenty of stuff that goes straight over my head, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not angry about that. It's more that it's the feeling of the, of the ride of these movies is really... You know, that's that's what the experience is in a way. Well, it's also scary enough to know that the upward mobility that Jay has at the beginning or preceding the film, and then at the end, the opportunity to be part of this is at the destruction of his own personal relationships or his family. Yeah, but it's also like something he wanted. Yeah. And he gets it. He wins. Yeah. And it's like, and he wins a hat, but he wins the, you know, he gets to be on his own. He doesn't have to do anything. He can sit on the sofa now, and that's the consequence of it again, you know, like the like the murdering of paedophiles, you know, <laughs> on a whim with no evidence, which he kind of does, you know. Well, it's like down to us in that respect. That's also a form of aspirations and a desire to, to um, be upwardly mobile in some, some way that comes at the expense of the familial unit. Yeah, I mean, the down terrace is an odd one because it had come out of... Um, it was originally a thing we were working on called um, Robin and Robert, which was about um, this... It was a... It was a script about artists, and they were a, they were a conceptual they did conceptual art, and um, but what how it was set up is that the father and the son 
um, were a team that were going back through history and they'd started off as like crofters or something, or, or, you know. And, but whenever the son has a child and has another son, then the father has to retire and it causes all kinds of trouble. And it was set in, you know, it's like in, in a gallery somewhere and they were... Anyway, so it took that structure and we're like, so, which is in Down Terrace, which is, the, you, you know, um, that the, ch the child has to become a man and the, the, the father has to step down. And that was, that was the basic starting block for it. Is there, we've talked about domesticity, and I think that that's maybe the most important aspect of, of Down Terrace. Mm. And I mean, to my mind, it called up something like the royal family, even the way mm. that there is a sadness to how static these lives can be. And mm. it's a film where we don't really see the exciting crime element. We only see yeah. the behind the scenes nitty gritty. I don't think there is any exciting crime <laughs> element to Down Terrace. I don't think anything, I mean, you know, that's why we don't even say what they do. I mean, yeah. it's just like, it's probably something really grubby and not very well paid <laughs> by the looks of them all. I mean, that would come out of a bit of, of that thing of like when they, uh, in Italy, when they'd find these mafia guys and they'd be living in a shack somewhere because they, they're like really powerful and they've got loads of money, but they can't show it outwardly, which is like crazy, you know, it's like you're, what's the point of it? I don't understand. It's like, Anyway, so, so there was that, that they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. Um, and then the idea that they were also this thing of, that, that they've been there for generations. I mean, there's, men, and there's mention of the, this family tree thing, but it's like this is, a, this is a family that has been, you know, you can imagine them again back in, you know, the Dark Ages kind of stabbing people and robbing them and stuff. So it had been, a, a, you know, a, a cycle that had been going on and on and on. And they... Um, but they make their own. And the other thing we were thinking about with it was that, for me, it was about um, uh, the kind of uh, uh, Blair and the dirty dossier and all that kind of thing of, uh, and, and Iraq and, and this idea that you could, by saying that w what you did you believe was right at the time justifies whatever you do. And so they, they use that excuse in the movie. It's like, oh yeah, well, I think it was okay. I mean, we, we, we're gonna kill all these guys because and now they're all dead and it's all got really complicated but it was okay because we thought it was right at the start it's like when was that a defense you know it's like what if i go into a shop and they, I, I thought that the food was all free and i t and i steal it does that will that stop them sending me to prison i don't i don't i don't think it would you know even if i really believed it you know so that you know and they basically are a they're like a city they're like a country and they declare war on everybody around them and then it just shows how that you know the madness of that just takes them all to pieces Visually, and this kind of uh, works with what you're just saying. The closer the camera gets, the more claustrophobic you get in that space as well. It seems like the closer the story gets to the characters, the closer they look at the situation they're in. The closer the camera gets, the more uncomfortable everything becomes. Yeah, I mean the house is tiny. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of dictated quite a lot of that stuff. Um, it's the first time that Laurie and I had shot on on primes for some for, for such a long time for, for you know for a feature so we kind of went prime crazy and shallow depth of field crazy and that and then you see in the movies that the that the, the depth of field gets wider until like you know i think it's on, on down terrace it's like that and then on uh, kill list it's about that and then sightseers is like that you know you don't see all this kind of desperate chasing of focus that laurie has to do because he operates and focuses he doesn't have a focus puller so um so yeah, we were really into all that, and that, it made sense within the, within that house because it's all everything so tight. Was that uh, fun to go to the vistas of, of sightseers from? Yeah, that was one of the things you know why I wanted to do it <laughs> to get outside. You know, what what 
working with that that the width of those those shots was compositionally what were you most excited for and especially the times of days you're shooting at the, just not being in an interior but having an exterior as well mm. um uh, well i mean you know sightseeing is just all it's all weather all hours you know the, i i learned a long time ago that there's no point writing you know exterior golden hour <laughs> in a low budget script because it's like well you know you get golden hour once fucking every six months in England maybe yeah. if you're lucky you know maybe it's just grey hour before it goes dark so it's just but when you get it you you know it's amazing but um, so yeah so you're basically you're more reacting to what you've got than planning planning it, planning it. with the, all the films they all tend to have a structure that they they lay bare you have the the day-to-day -day structure in Down Terrace, you have the list in Kill List, and you have kind of the map mm. in, in uh, Sightseers. How important is having that kind of, or at least the illusion of a very specific plan? Yeah, it just helps, doesn't it, with, yeah. the, <laughs> with the general tying together of the knots of the, of the thing, and you know, and then we all, you know, we kind of find these, uh, the rhythms of it within it, and like in the saying in Kill List, we had the, the symmetrical thing and then with, within Sightseers we found the double murders were the thing that really tied it together for us of finding that big chunks of it really were replicating across it and once we, once we found that pattern then some of it was planned but some of it wasn't and once we found it we, we, we kind of made sure that those things started to match a bit more and it informed how we were going to cut the things around it so um, that's the joy of uh, you know one of the joys of doing long form is to find those rhythms across and it's not just from it's not just acts it's half act to half act and then it's the end of the movie talking to the middle of the movie and the end talking to the end and all these kinds of things so that starts to become more important is there a significance to the specific um, locations in sites here as, as far as the relationship to the story and how it progresses is there maybe a mirroring that goes on no it's not as clever as that sadly <laughs> no it was it, it the, the, they'd all come from uh, from alice and steve so they'd come from a road trip that steve's dad had planned for them so they so they're all in the right order and they're all they they are shot chronologically and we, uh, they're all real, you know, mm. but there's nothing, it doesn't make a shape or anything. <laughs> 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 a big pencil? Yeah, yeah. What was it like uh, with the adapting that? What did you feel that you had that would definitely work with this project? Um, it, it, it kind of, from the start, kind of fitted in with my themes and stuff I like. And that's, you know, which is no coincidence, it's why they approached me, I'm sure, because it make, you know, makes sense. Um, uh, and then we uh, we did a pass on the script, or Amy did a pass on the script, which kind of then sorted out like kind of structurally how the film was fitted together to, to make it well, basically just to use the stuff that we'd learnt from doing the other movies. And like, and there'd been there'd been a lot of development with the script, and it'd been going round and round for years. And you know, they'd be getting lots of different advice about you've got to do it like this, got to do it like that. And I was like, look, I've done it. I've done these films. I know what they are. You know, Kill This really isn't structurally massively different from this movie. So, you know, you've got you know, if you want it to work like this, it, these things are going to have to happen. So, and then we kind of there, lots of the elements were in there, but we kind of tidied the names, tidied them up a bit more. So like the kind of stone circle and the rambler were more specific things that you know, she, she wrote all the rambler stuff and she'd written all the um, she wrote the carapod into it and she extended out the dog yeah. stuff which the, originally the dog kind of um, disappeared after Ian and Janice goes but then Amy put in the stealing of the dog and the transporting you know so you know that kind of thing so it, it was kind of retailed back to 
to, to, to fit with the other movies but then also we did loads of improv but then Ames was in on the edit again so she kind of then made it make sense as a story again incorporating all the new material. It's a film where you have a lot of uh, close-ups and, and it seems like a lot of the gestures uh, are captured. Is that something where you're trusting that these are actors that have been inhabited these characters for so long and that, that they are that expressive of them that allowed you to... Yeah, I mean, I knew that, you know, they'd obviously been doing these characters for years, yeah. so I knew that, it would, you know, and that, that, that's the beauty of it, that you, you, you've got people who have written the script and could improvise in character stuff that was useful. I mean, that was the problem, a problem you get with, you know, on Kill List, the guys improvising was amazing, the performances are brilliant, but when you get to the cold light of day of having to fit it into the movie, you get basically about a minute or so, and then it goes off theme, and you're you can't, it doesn't earn its place and you know it's really it's a cutthroat world in the edit you know if it's not holding its weight it's got to go so um, so they were able to stay more on on theme to a degree you know so we did a lot more a lot more wild improv that was then put into the movie because it was it fitted but um, Kill List ended up we used a lot of stuff where you go I tend to shoot like a take that's um, on on the script and a take that's off the script which is like a paraphrase and then back on the script, back off, the, on, off, on, off. Um, and Killis feels improvised, but it's actually mainly scripted. Mm. But those off-script ones give you the ums and ahs occasionally, and, or, and also they feed back into the scripted version so that the script gets more, the scripted readings have more meaning because they understand, you know, they've emotionally connected to the lines, you know, from before. Um, but then there's, there are bits in it that are... I mean, it, 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 that we had that thing with it, it's credited as um, additional dialogue by the cast. And that had come out of Down Terrace where that, the line, um, I'm going to fuck you up the arse and set your hair on fire, was uh, someone had asked me if I'd written it and I said, no, I hadn't. And the guy said, yeah, I know, because it's a, something Smiley says all the time. <laughs> and because um, he's a stand-up, you know, um, he's part of an act. And I realised that I'd, now, I now was attributed to writing that. And I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't written it, and it's bad. And when you get people in who are stand-up comedians like that, like Smiley is, he's burning his own material for you. And it's like, it's, no, it's not good to, to take credit for that. So we, that's, you know, if I go back, I'd re re-credit Down Terrace like that as well. But, but the stuff that, they, that him and Maskell and Miana threw into, into um, Kill List was, you know, there's some really good bits, and you know, so they got the credit for that. Thanks, Ben. Ooh. Wow, that's it. <laughs>